um, before I say anything else, I want to say something. Um, <clears throat> I am a youth pastor, and I typically speak with people who are in middle school and high school. You know that. I know that. We all know that. And there will be parts of this service that are going to feel like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? I'm not in high school, okay? I don't need you to... I know it, and you know it. I've decided to, to format this sermon in such a way because I believe that um, God has given me a burden to share this message with this church for an effect. It's not um, to educate you. My goal here is not to uh, inspire you. My goal is to help you guys do some business with God. And so there are going to be parts of this where you're going to feel um, I'm not condescending at any point because I realize that you guys are all brilliant. And so that's good. So, yeah, that disclaimer done. What I want to start with is a little bit about me. I'm Adam. Um, I'm not here often, so I always introduce myself for some reason. And there's something you need to know about me. I am a chronic people pleaser. Uh, I, I've been that way basically all my life. Um, from a very, very early age, in fact. Um, this story actually happened uh, when I was in kindergarten. And first, before I start, I need to find somebody who can whistle. Tom Bruce, can you whistle? Can somebody whistle? You can whistle. Okay. Every time I point to you, I need you to whistle. Okay? So, first day of kindergarten, I am uh, a mama's boy, and my mom takes me. And what do you think I did when she started to leave? <laughs> she introduced me to Miss Jones, who was nice, young, and pretty, and like, is like the perfect older sister kind of idea for a little five-year-old boy. Like, I instantly thought she was great, but at the same time, she wasn't mom. And as soon as mom went out the door, I just, I lost it. I lost my mind, and I just started crying and crying and crying. And I know that this is not an abnormal story. Either we remember or we have been in that room where there's that one kid that won't shut up because his mom left. He knew the plan going in, and for some reason he chose this time to cry. I know. I was five. So uh, I'm crying, and, and you know, Miss Jones is a wonderful kindergartner teacher, so she, she brings us these coloring books and crayons, and instantly all thoughts of my mom were gone, because I was like, I love coloring. This is my favorite thing ever. So, you know, the tears are drying out of my eyes, and I'm, you know, coloring, and I'm thinking, you know, school might not be all that bad. I don't hate it as much as I thought I would. And from my right-hand side, I hear this sound. And I'm like, that's annoying, but I'm going to keep coloring. And then I hear it again. And I keep coloring, and I hear it again, until finally, <laughs> it's hard to whistle while you're laughing, I understand. Um, finally, Miss Jones, this wonderful, nice young gal, looks up and says, Adam, please don't whistle. I, it, okay. Because, see, I didn't want to even, like, argue with her because bad kids argue with teachers. Good kids just shake their head and say, okay. So I thought, everything's going to be fine. He heard it. I looked over, and it was Dusty. You know, the kid that was, like, always dirty. This is the first day of school, and he was already dirty, and he already smelled bad. And I felt really bad for him, except for the fact that he was doing this while I'm coloring. So I'm coloring again, and then all of a sudden I hear... And I'm coloring, and I'm coloring, and I hear, 
And I look over, and he looks at me, and he goes... goes back to coloring. He knows that I'm going to get in trouble for this. So Miss Jones looks up and she says, Adam, I don't want to have to tell you again. Please don't whistle. And then I just completely lost it at that point. She was so nice, so kind, but twice being told to stop whistling. When I wasn't the one doing it, it was just this uh, pile of excuses and tears and sobbing of, I can't even whistle. Because I was standing accused. I felt so wrong because someone else was doing something wrong and they were making me look bad. First day of school. Okay? So, that gives you an idea of the kind of person that I am. I hate being in trouble. I like being the good kid. And that's my whole life. Even to this day, I hate being in trouble. When Don Hill walks up to me between services and says, Hey, Adam, I want to talk to you. Instantly, my mind is going through all the things that I did wrong. I'm like, uh, okay, which thing is he going to bring up? Uh, okay. And it was none of those things. Um, so <laughs> that's just who I am. And so my sophomore year of high school rolls around, and I'm in um, geometry. And in geometry, we're at a part in the class where we're starting to use graphing calculators. Now, since we didn't use them very much, uh, we didn't have to own them. They loaned them to us. And so they had a bin. There was a little ledger that you signed and you checked out and you checked in and all that stuff. And like very soon in, our teacher stopped the ledger thing. She's just like, just take one and put it back when you're done. I'm excited because I love math. I love calculators. And there's a game on this one. So I'm just like playing that game and doing my math problems and everything's great. And it was getting towards the end of the semester and it was like a more difficult concept, so I was like really into math. I was into the process. And all of a sudden the bell rings. And I had not prepared at all, so I just took the whole desk and I go <laughs> into my backpack. And, and so the textbook and the notebook and the calculator go into my backpack. I didn't know it at the time. So I zip it up and I go out and it's the last class of last day of the week. So it's Friday afternoon. I'm done. So take my backpack home, throw it on the floor, don't look at it again until Saturday because I'm going to do my homework because I'm a good student. So I open my book bag on Saturday to find my homework and there, staring at me, is this calculator. Now this isn't just like a little, um, you know, like a science, not a, you know, the one that just does plus and minus and multiplication and division. This is a graphing calculator. These are like $80. It's a TI-83. And I'm looking at it, and it's looking at me, and I'm thinking, I'm a criminal. I'm a criminal because this is my book bag. This is my house, and that is not my calculator. I have stolen something. I didn't even plan on it. Like, I, you know how some people, like, plan for a life of crime? It just came on to me and, and, and kicked down the door and said, hey, I'm here. And so I, I was trying to make plans for the future now. Like, I had to like change my ID and, and, you know, like run from the FBI and, you know, I had to live on the run basically because my life of crime has just started. Like it just chose me. So at that point, there are two things that are going on. When I'm looking down at this calculator that does not belong to me, that is in my possession, there are two things going on. There's a tremendous feeling of guilt because I'm a good kid. 
I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a people pleaser. I want authority to love me. I want authority to like me. And so I, I see this and I feel so guilty. I could have just killed a guy and probably wouldn't feel more guilty than I did at this point. So, and the second thing that's going on is that I actually am guilty of stealing. Now, you and me both, we know that it was an accident. But literally, in the bag was something else that did not belong to me in my possession. It was in my house. If the cops had knocked on my door and said, the school has called in, said that you stole a graphing calculator, we have a warrant for your book bag, which when you're in sophomore in high school, it's like, that's totally possible. And so they would look in my book bag, see the calculator, and I would go to jail forever. <laughs> Not really, but I was guilty. I had actually literally stolen it. So I had the feeling of guilt, and I actually was, in fact, guilty. Those don't always necessarily go together. There are some people that feel guilty and aren't actually guilty, and then there are some terrible people that do terrible things and never feel guilty for it. I'm not one of those people. I have borrowed their guilt. So what, the reason I tell you these stories is because I believe that the thing that we're going to be talking about today centers around the concept of guilt. It centers around the concept of guilt. And so, you know me, I, I always try to think of some application early on so you can be thinking of it when I'm thinking of it. So one point of application that I wanted to think of today is what about you? How are you feeling this morning? If you were to open a, a, a door to your heart, a metaphorical door, obviously, and, and into your heart and look and see the things in it and see into your past and see into um, the thoughts the words, the actions, the things that you have done or left undone, I would suspect there are things that you are guilty of, even as a believer. There are things that you have done, if you've never known Christ, that you've just lived your whole life this way. And you might not even feel guilty about it. You know, you just kind of take advantage of people and you, you lie to them and whatever it takes to get you in a good place. But even those of us who know Christ, after we, we follow him, at least I've never run, anybody that, run into anybody that isn't in this situation. After we follow him, we're like, I'm going to serve Jesus. I want to love him with everything I have. And then like 10 minutes later, we sin. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I can't believe it. And so if you look in your heart... I suspect that there are situations, there are people that you have wronged. There are people in your life, maybe it's God himself that you have wronged. And you know, and you know that you know. Well, for um, this part, I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox. Um, there's a question on all of your worship folders. And then, uh, could you bring that up for me, please? It's the first question. The question is, and I'm going to actually give you some time to answer this, what are some names or key words that remind you of your own feelings of guilt? All you would have to say to me today in relation to guilt is calculator, and I would instantly be back there. That's a key word. Because I realize what we're doing is something that's incredibly personal. All of a sudden, like, I didn't warm you up to this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some time of silence where you can privately write 
answer, an answer or answers to this question. What are some names or ideas, keywords, that remind you of your own feelings of guilt, of your own guilt? So I'm not going to talk for a few minutes, not a few minutes, a few seconds, and then um, we'll go on. So for those of us who are, um, you know, maybe you didn't grab a worship folder or you didn't get a pen or whatever, I want you to write these things on your heart. Hold them there as we talk. Um, we're going to look at a lot of things that this will directly apply to. So hold that there in your heart. Hold that there on your paper. I've made it so you can rip off the bottom. Some of them rip a little bit easier than others, but I've made it so you can rip off the bottom. So even if you like wrote something you want to keep secret, you just hide that for now. So there you go, while you're making the rest of your notes. So the next thing I want to talk about is them. And it's a little bit weird, and I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but if I tell you that there are people in your life that have either wronged you or wronged people close to you. And it's not questionable. They are guilty. Um, that fits. If you think that they are guilty, if you know that they are guilty, we're going to take just another couple seconds and we're going to write down those things. What are things that other people are guilty of? The things that you're harboring inside of your own heart. And you're saying, you, you just wish... Um, so when I was in high school, we had these projectors that weren't like these. They were Elmo with the light on the bottom and they whirred and they projected a thing on the top. You wish that you could take that person's actions, put it on top of the projector so the whole class could see. You wish that you could hold them up to God and say, punish them. They're guilty. I want you to do me a favor. Take some time right now uh, um, there's a second question there on your worship folder that says, um, what are some names or keywords that remind you of other people's guilt? And I want you to actually to write those things out. And I want to encourage you, if it's a thing that you're hesitating about writing, you feel like, if I write it, it's just going to become real, and I hate that, write it down. Because that means that it's right in the center of your heart. You don't want to let that one go. So... Silence for a little bit, and I'll go on to the next thing here soon.
So in order to talk about guilt, I think one of the most clear lenses that we can look at from Scripture uh, is from kind of the very beginning. It's very early on. Um, It's in Genesis chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there with me. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. The NIV is going to be on the projector. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. It's a taste difference. Um, So if you hear me say something that's not up there, it's not because I'm making stuff up. I'm reading it differently. And so this is right after Noah has survived the flood. And God is giving new instructions for the new start. Um, It's kind of like a, it's not a reset button, but people are going to start over from this point. Everyone else is dead. It's Noah and his family, and that's it. Okay? So, verse 5. He's giving them instructions about um, how to eat and how to live. And um, just for those of you who were wondering, the Bible does endorse um, eating meat. Um, Earlier in chapter 9, it says, every crawling thing I've given you to eat. So, if you like to eat steak, there you go. The Bible says you can do it. Um... Yeah, Verse 5 says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So we have this idea that is very closely linked with the actual physical idea of blood. Because in their time, um, you know, we can probably live most of our life without having to see blood unless we, like, work in a medical profession where we see blood regularly. Like, the most blood that we typically see is when we, like, cut ourselves or that sort of thing. But when people lived, you know, um, hand-to-mouth, there were a lot of violent ways to go. And so they very closely link the idea of blood with life. Blood is life. Life is blood. Blood is life. Life is blood. Like, that's just, it's synonymous. And so what he's saying is, is he says, if someone spills your blood, I will require payment of them. It says there will be a reckoning. There needs to be some sort of transaction that happens. Because what happens is, if you take someone's life and spill their blood, you have set things out of balance. And God says, if you do that, I will balance it out. I require that you balance it out. If you take a debit, you need to credit. So, this worked out that if you killed someone, God's justice said that you got killed back. Okay? So if you take someone's life, um, your life needs to be taken. And that is just the way it is. And it actually even explains, I think, a little bit about why. Here in verse 6, near the end, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For, another way to read that is because, God made man in his own image. If you look to your left and look to your right, there will be all sorts of different people there's all sorts of different people in this room. All sorts of, like, heights and shapes and, and appearances and eye color and hair color. But all of them, every person you see in this room, excluding none, 
was made in God's very own image. Um, the, the, the point of this is not that God made us to be, like, awesome. It's not like God was thinking, hmm, I've made horses and cows, now what will I do? Because he could have done that. He could have just made something more complex, more beautiful, but he didn't. Instead, he made something that was so incredibly personal to him that he made it to bear his own image. So just to give you a kind of a concept for this, in the Old Testament, you hear about false idols and, and, and local gods and household gods that they worshipped all the time. They were these little images, sometimes made out of clay, sometimes made out of wood. If you were rich, they were iron um, or more precious metals. And they were always carved or molded to appear to be the God that you're worshipping. And everyone who's worshipping understands that this little statue is not your God, that you're, you know, this represents that. And so, the interesting thing is, is that that word for idol is the same word as image. It's the same idea. We are not made um, kind of sort of to represent God. Like, we're not made as the crowning achievement, as his most complex thing, which we are. We are made to represent God here on earth. We're the, the, the physical representation that there is a God out there and he is wonderful. So each person you see is made in the image of God. Each person that you see is in the likeness of God. They are there to represent a creator. Yes, even babies. Even them, yeah. So the thing is, he says... This is something that is incredibly precious to me. And if you break it, you bought it. This is justice. This is not God being mean. This is not God um, putting unreasonable rules on people. He says, if you kill someone, you need to be killed back. We are all his creation. It's in his rights to say this. This is his justice. So, the uh, people of Israel, they received several commands on how to live this out. Um, they received several commands on how to live out the rest of their life. And sometimes it's really, really specific, and sometimes we get kind of bored with how specific it is, like when we read numbers. Ugh, that can be a little bit too specific. But guess where we're going today? Numbers, chapter 35. In God's law, he's giving them um, some, some commands on how to live this out. And he says, in verse 19, The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. So the avenger of blood. How many of you guys have heard of the kinsman redeemer? We talked about Christ as kinsman redeemer a couple weeks ago with Pastor David um, from Ruth. And that is a different responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemers had a lot to do. And in the case of murder... Like, um, I need... Tom, can you stand up for me? I know, I hate using you as, as an example. Cheyenne, can I borrow you? Okay. Yeah, you need to turn around. This is Tom, this is Cheyenne. Everybody say, hi, Tom, hi, Cheyenne. So, okay. Let's say that um, Cheyenne is my sister. Okay? Hi. Nice to meet you, sister. Um, let's say that Cheyenne is my sister, and I'm a good Jew, and I follow the law, and... Tom kills Cheyenne. 
You don't have to actually act that out. But let's say that Tom kills Cheyenne. I'm going to be mad, obviously, because she's my sister and he's not. And I'm going to, you know, want to avenge her, you know, just from inside of me. But also on top of that is God's command that as her closest relative, you know, let's say our parents are dead and I'm the oldest son, as her closest relative, all of a sudden, regardless of what my job was before, if I was a banker, I have to stop. If I was a farmer, I have to stop. If I was a mason, I have to stop. My new job, until I complete it, is to kill him back. Because all of a sudden, he has made things out of balance. So, do you mind staying here for just a little bit? Because I'm going to keep using you as examples. You're not a killer, and I know that. So, um, <clears throat> so if he kills her, I have to kill him back. And so, I'm going to go as soon as I find out. So, let's say I'm in the other room, and he kills her. And I'm like, okay, well, now I'm going to kill him. He's dead now. You know, like, it's not that hard to chase him down because he's in the same house. But what if he killed her by accident? Let's say that they were out in a field and, um, you know, they were chopping down trees and the axe head flew off and hit her in the head and not good. She doesn't live. And I find out about it from the house. I might even be kind of understanding. I might be like, well, it was an accident. It's okay. My job, my responsibility, is to go kill him back. Because all of a sudden, the account is out of balance. There was a debit, there needs to be a credit. So, the trick is, that you have this incredible value of life. You have this um, really harsh um, reality of living that way. Um, following through with the kinsman redeemer, the avenger of blood, that I have to kill you now. Like, that's a harsh reality. So then, what God does, because I think that God knows us, and he made us in his, in his own image, so he knows us through and through, he made a plan for us in the eventuality that maybe we didn't do it on purpose. And so what he did was he established these six cities of refuge. Okay? And so, um, in your notes, actually, you guys could probably sit down. Thank you very much. Um, in your notes, you will note that there are several passages that are references at the top. Um, I would encourage you to look through these because what it is is it's several big chunks of text that, that light up different aspects of what a city of refuge is. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, kind of blend them together. I'm going to summarize them. And so what I would like for you to do is do me a favor and, you know, when you get back home or when you get throughout the rest of the week, I want you to look at these passages, look up the references, and if there was anything that I said that, you know, um, it was just like, oh, that sounds made up, please um, call me, email me, let me know. Um, I'm, I just feel kind of bad about not reading each one, but it would take a long time. So I'm going to summarize a city of refuge for you. So the way that the cities of refuge worked was um, we, <clears throat> let's see, Fort Laramie is, what, 10 miles from here? And then Guernsey is 20-ish? About. That's about as far away as I could get in Israel from a city of refuge, was Guernsey. Because the way that God told them to set it up was, he said, put three on the west bank of the Jordan, put three in Israel proper, and he, and he lined them up. So Israel is like a column of a country, 
and he puts them at each point of a column. Okay? And so what he says is he says, I'm going to give you these, these three cities, and then what I also want is to have these three other cities on the east side of the Jordan. So he lines out three other cities on the east side. So if you were anywhere in the vicinity of Israel, you had a city of refuge nearby. And the, what these were, were the exact case that I was talking about earlier, when you accidentally, in fact, um, I believe it's the Deuteronomy tradition, or the Deuteronomy text that says that if you're out in the forest and you're chopping down trees and the axe head flies off and kills a guy, you need to run to the city because you didn't do it on purpose. So what it was, was it was a place for a murderer to run when they wanted to not die from the kinsman redeemer. So Tom would run to this city and I would chase him because my job is to kill him and he wants to live. And so he goes to the city and what they do is um, they, they welcome you in. And, and an interesting fact about cities of refuge, and this is from um, some more uh, rabbinical history, um, the gates were always open. The doors were always unlocked. You could run in at any time of day. And so he would be running. I would be chasing him. And he would run in and he would say, you know, I need refuge. And so the elders of that town would surround him and if the Avenger was there, then the Avenger would be sat down. Tom would be sat down. We'd, we'd both sit down, and the, the elders would say, they would hold court, basically, to determine whether Tom had intentionally killed Cheyenne or accidentally killed Cheyenne. I realize it's kind of goofy to be talking about this, but it serves a purpose. So they would have that trial, and if they determined that um, Tom had intentionally Let's say that like, she stole his lunch the day before and he just wanted to get rid of her. If he had intentionally killed her, what they would do was they would release both men. They'd say, go ahead. Go on out. And, I, I mean, you guys could probably figure out what would happen next because the Avenger of Blood, his job is still to kill the other guy. And the city of refuge has said, mm-mm, not my problem. And so justice happens there. Like, really satisfying, deep justice. The kind of justice that you're like, yeah, got him. That's uh, not good. So what happens, though, if he's in the trial? Let's say Tom's in the trial, and, and I'm, I'm there, and, and we find out that Tom did it by accident. There was no malice in his heart. There was no enmity. He had no bitterness towards Cheyenne. It just happened. It was an accident. Well, what would happen is that Tom would be allowed to stay in the city, I would be released, and I could not kill Tom. I would be told very clearly that um, he's being taken care of, and I had to go home because my duties were fulfilled. Because he would stay in the city for the rest of his life and live there safe in refuge. Now, the trick was, this is very interesting. Um, this is um, biblical for sure. The, the priest actually, he would um, take on Tom's sin. He would absorb his sin, and it would be on his shoulders, kind of like what Pastor Ty was talking about uh, a while back, that, that he would carry, him on, carry the sins on his shoulders. And as long as the high priest was alive, Tom had to live in the city to be safe. But as soon as the high priest died, Tom could go free. Because his debt... 
And I want you to hear this. Because this is there's a there's a metaphor here, and I'm gonna draw it out later, but his debt was placed on the high priest's shoulders. And when the high priest died, he was free to go. He could go back out. I could not kill him. He was protected. And that's the way it worked. Now the trick is, what I think is really interesting about this is cities of refuge were full of murderers. And I want you to get this point. They were not full of people that had been acquitted. They were not full of people who had been proven that, that, you know, evidence came up. Turns out it wasn't Tom. uh, Turns out it was actually Maddie, you know, and Tom could go free. Like, it wasn't like innocence. These people had still killed people. The calculator was still in their back. Okay? They were full of guilty people. But there was just this incredible measure of mercy for that person because justice would say, you die back. But God built into his law, I think to point towards something else a little bit later, God built into his law this measure of mercy so that his justice starts to feel like mercy. And the mercy still feels like justice. So you'll notice that there are, there are um, blanks on the back of your page. God deals with us with justice and mercy. It's not or. God deals with us with mercy and justice. You know, a lot of times we try to make sure that these are drawn out in discrete categories, but we all live a life that's all meshed together. And so I think we understand what it means to be, you know, um, how many of you ever broke a window when you were a kid with a baseball or something? I know it's a common thing in a story, but I've definitely done stuff like that. Uh, and what happens is, you know, I have to pay for the repairs, but the neighbor forgives me. So there's this measure of justice that I have to pay for the repairs, but then there's also mercy in that the neighbor's like, ah, it's okay. And, and you know, he would have me over for ice cream or something, you know, afterwards. It's okay. And it's mixed up. And what I want to suggest to us is that we live mixed up lives. So before I talk about Jesus, I want to tell you a little bit more about the city of refuge. And this is um, from the Talmudic um, rabbinical, the people that were like living this out. They kind of made new laws around the old laws. This is how they did this. So what they did was they made every road to a city of refuge twice as wide as every other road. Because the idea was that if someone was running for their lives and there was a carriage in the middle or a cart that would slow them down, that might be the difference between life and death. So they wanted to make the road extra wide so you could get there. They were told to maintain the road twice a year, which is more than any other road. They were told to, to repair it. If there are damages, if it's a washout, you need to repair it. They were told that every bridge mu- or every river must be bridged. You never had to like cross a stream because that would slow you down. It had to be bridged. Every hill had to be leveled. So this road to a city of refuge never went up and over a hill because maybe while you're running away, your avenger might catch up to you and you won't find refuge. So you had to run straight. Now the most interesting thing that I found in, in the way that they practiced this was they had two um, scribes. If they, if they knew that somebody was running for their life, they would assign two scribes to go with them. 
What did those scribes do, you think? They ran with them, and in case the avenger caught up, it was their job to hold him at bay as you run for your life. So this is what a city of refuge is. It's a place for the guilty to go. Whether they're more guilty or less guilty, everyone who ran to a city of refuge was guilty of killing someone. And, and another thing, one last thing I want to point out is that every turning point, every fork in the road, every T in the road, every, every chance you could take a turn, there was a huge sign. And I just wish sometimes I could see this sign in my own life. And it says, Refuge. Arrow. So you don't even have to slow down to read it. But what I want to tell you guys today is that we do have that sign. We do have that in our lives. Whether we read it or not, Jesus points us to refuge. Jesus himself is refuge. So there's a verse I want to look at. It's in Hebrews chapter 6. Um, we're going to slow down our globe trotting here in a little bit. Um, but this is such a crucial thing. Because what's happening is, is the author of Hebrews has just warned um, the readers of disobedience. He's just warned them not to fall away from their faith, not to, not to run a different way. And so what he's doing is he's assuring them, he's promising them that they have hope, that they have security, that they have something to fight for, that the things that they're doing in obedience are actually towards a good end. And so he's using this encouragement. And uh, he talks about two things, and I'm going to reference it in this verse, so I'm going to explain it. He says, by two things. The two things are God's word. He says he's going to do something, and then he swears by his own name that he's going to do something because there's no one higher. There's no one. God can't say, by by me, I guess. I'm going to do this because he's the highest thing. And so he, he tells people things and then he promises it by his own name that you are going to be secure, that you are going to enter in, that you have hope. And so he says this thing. He says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Wouldn't it be terrible if you ran to a city of refuge and like there was a sign over the city that said refuge and then as soon as you enter into the gate, there's a sign that says like, psych, gotcha, not a city of refuge. Now I guess I'm dead. You know, it it would be a terrible thing. And God is not going to pull the bottom out on us on this one. We can rely on this. It says, by his word and by his oath, two unchangeable things in which God will never lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So, um, one thing I failed to mention earlier is that if you were, say, at the temple and your avenger found you, and you had no way to run to a city of refuge, you, what you could do is you could run into the sanctuary to the altar of God, which is a very reverent thing. Like, you don't do this casually. You have to be desperate. But if you're running for your life, you probably are desperate. 
you run to the altar and you grab hold of the horns on the altar. Because God says that no one can be killed at the altar. And what you would do is you would, you would hold on to these horns and you would cry out for refuge. And the priests would assign people to escort you to the nearest city of refuge to have your business dealt with. So I want you to, to hear that verse again. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I want to tell you guys that this is not a neat, clean, um, this means this sort of sermon. Um, because I don't think that the author of Hebrews wanted it to be a neat and clean thing, because he keeps using these words that allude to a city of refuge, to the different ideas of a city of refuge. So I just want to point out a couple things. Jesus is the city. He is there as soon as we turn to him. We don't have to run 20 miles to get to him. He is a better city of refuge than even the cities of refuge. So we can run into him whether um, we have done wrong or whether we've done wrong on purpose. We can run into him and find refuge. He is the city. But he's also the priest that stands before God that takes your murder upon his shoulders and for that time, he was called, he, he, the Bible says that he was cursed. He, became, he, he took on that guilt. He became sin for you and for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he, he takes that sin upon himself, and then he dies. And he takes it away. So Jesus, I think, is the city I think Jesus is the sign pointing us to to the truth that God is our refuge. I think that Jesus, even in a way, is running alongside of us like those two scribes would have to do. And he's running alongside of us and he's telling us, you're mine. You're mine, you're mine, you're mine. You belong to me. Romans chapter 8 talks about living in the spirit and then living in the flesh. And there's just this wonderful picture of this warring of states. In chapter 7, Paul says, What a wretched man am I that this war is waging on within me. There's sin and there's life. There's sin and there's the Spirit. There's death and then there's life. And Jesus, I think, is running alongside of us, telling, telling us, You belong to me. You belong to me. You are covered. Your sins are covered. I already died for those. That is not you. You are no longer known as a liar. You are no longer known as a murderer. You are no longer known as a thief. Because the avenger, he's coming after us. Um, The Bible calls Satan an accuser. Calls us different things. He says, yeah, but you still sin. You still have this wrong. When Eve is talking to the serpent in the garden, he goes, did God really say that? Are you really covered? Are you really safe? 
And I think the answer in Hebrews is that yes, we are safe not because of our work, not because of our virtue, but by virtue of the city, by virtue of our refuge, Jesus Christ, who died for us once for all for many. We have refuge. Jesus is our refuge. That's the last set of blanks. And if you want to make it more personal today, I would say Jesus is my refuge. Because it's easy to talk about concepts and ideas and about how, you know, that, that's true. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for my sins. The ones like I did yesterday. For those. So, back to the you and me. Because Scripture is useful when we live it. If you look at that list, of that first question, where I said, what are the names or key ideas, things that bring back all those feelings of guilt? I want you to know that Christ died for those. Christ died for those things. And so something that is really, really helpful in some traditions, and you can do it wrong and you can do it right, and what I would say is let's do it the right way. Uh, There's a a concept of confession. It's called confession and absolution or confession and assurance. And the idea is that every week people in these churches will, will publicly read a confession of guilt, and then there's a time of silence to fill in all the other things. And if you do it wrong, you're going to fill that with, you know, oh, I better think of this, and I better think of this, and I better think of this, because if, if I don't think of every sin and ask for forgiveness for every little sin, then, then Jesus won't be able to forgive those things. And you have to, like, renew it. Like, you have to stamp it, you know, regularly and keep, keep up your salvation. I don't think that's the right way to live it. But a really, really helpful way for a sinner, someone who, who knows Jesus and still sins, like me, is to regularly bring things to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know you've forgiven me for my sins, but I really blew this. And I'm really sorry. When um, Jenny does something, she messes up, or when I do something and I mess up, one of us will apologize. I'll say, Jenny, I'm sorry. And she'll say, it's okay. I'll say, no, it's not. I don't know if you've ever been a part of that conversation, but you don't, wanna, you don't want them to say it's okay because that's like you never did anything wrong. You did do something wrong. But when you bring those things to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, I, I'm just sorry. This is what I did, and I blew it. He says, you are forgiven. Are presently standing, ongoingly, you are forgiven. Not you are now forgiven since you've done this thing. You are forgiven. That is your identity. You are someone who is forgiven. So what I want to ask you guys to do, on the reverse side of your notes, you'll notice that um, there's a section that says, Dear God, and there's lots of space. If you are in the category, if you're in that place right now where you brought in just a boatload of guilt, either actual or just felt, something that would be really, really helpful, and I would suggest that you do it. We're going to have time to do this in a little bit, um, is to write out, Jesus, I did this thing and I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. 
and remind yourself that when we bring our sins to him, he says, you're forgiven. I died for you while you were a sinner. Do you think I did not know this? He knew. He knows. But there's something really, really healthy, really, really um, joy-bringing when we can bring those things up and say, ugh, yuck. So I want to encourage you that if you're in that category and you have done wrong, write those things out. Um, If you are in uh, the other category where others have done you wrong, and some of us have been so egregiously wrong, uh, my mind can't even get wrapped around it. But Scripture is pretty clear that it's up to God to judge, and it's up to God to have vengeance. Romans chapter 12 tells us that. It says, do not repay um, evil for evil. Repay it with good, because God has got justice taken care of. He wrote the book on justice. So if you today are holding someone to account, and you, and you have their sins, and you just want to put them up for the whole world to see, and you just want to say, but they were wrong, let that go. Let that go. Because it's, it's not like this. It's not like you're saying, oh, okay, what they did was totally normal. It's totally fine. You know, it's, it's okay. That is not right. The people who were in the city of refuge were murderers. They were guilty. And these people in your life very well could be guilty. But it's up to Jesus to judge them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will take care of that stuff. Let him do his job, and you do yours. Because none of us is an avenger of blood. Luckily, because it would be a terrible place to live in where people were always running around trying to kill each other. That would be miserable. None of us are avengers of blood. We leave vengeance up to Jesus now. So, if you're in that category, and you, and, and you have you know, written out those names those ideas, or those people, the things that remind you how guilty they are. And, and, and maybe even thinking about it, there's just like this well of anger. feels like fire inside. And, and you just have to write. You know, maybe you might need to write more. And you need to take this to Jesus. But what I would say is, whatever it takes, take your business before the Lord. Because He is a city of refuge, even for the people that have wronged us. So there's um, one more category of people that I, I, I never want to not talk about. If you are running and you have no idea where refuge is and you've never entered into a safe place, if you are running from your life and you, and you have wronged so many people, there's like a mob behind you and they have to get in line, and and, and you just feel like you stand convicted and you stand guilty, and you have never come to Jesus and said, Jesus, please just take everything that I am. I want to encourage you guys to um, use that space to say, Jesus, I need refuge. Live your life for him. It's a tremendous, tremendous thing. So what's going to happen is, I'm going to... play a, a little bit of instrumental music. Um, the band we're just going to play for a little bit. It's going to be a little bit awkward because we're not going to be singing, but we're going to be playing, and that's okay. 
Um, but what I would like for you to do is take that time to do your business with God regarding those people. Now again, if you did not bring pens or you don't have your worship folder, that's fine. Do your business in your heart. Say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Bring out everything in it that doesn't please you. Because he does bring us assurance. He does give us refuge. He gives us a safe place to be. All of us, thieves, liars, murderers, adulterers, idolaters. We have a safe place in Jesus. So, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are our refuge and that um, wherever we're at in life, we can know that, that you made out justice and mercy and it's all wrapped up and God, um, I just pray that you'd help us to help us to be honest with you as we're talking to you, whether we're writing it down or whether it's in our own hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to really get this thing started. Lord, for some of us, we're going to be going on a process. We've dealt with guilt so long that we don't know what it's like to live without it. We've dealt with bitterness so long we don't know what it's like to live without it. But Jesus, we thank you that you just take everyone broken. So God, I pray that you'd help us to find refuge in you today. Amen.